turn to Matthew chapter 4 this morning, verses 1 through 11. Before reading this morning, I'd like you to note the fact that time is one of the highlighted features of this particular temptation account. In verse 1, you find the word then. In verse 2, when. In verse 3, when. In verse 5, then. In verse 10, then. It is a very time-sensitive text. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then when Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3 Then the devil taketh him up into a, the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Part of Psalm 91. Jesus saith unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee thence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Father, we return to this text because we recognize this morning that there are so many Bible threads that run together and through this particular significant moment of time in the life of our Lord, First Advent. It is our prayer today that as we seek to pick up on some of those nuances, some of those thread lines, that you would help us not to miss Matthew's main purpose in presenting to us Jesus as king and the blessedness of his kingdom. Help us then to see that we have a most qualified Savior who even as our lady sung today went through the time of testing and proved to be nothing but pure gold. Likewise, we would traverse the times of earthly testing in such a way to ring true and to come forth as pure gold. And so we think of Christ and we seek to apply it to Christians, even as we remember that there is so much more in this occasion of event than just simply a good example. But there is a good example, and we would that your people would follow it today as we think upon our Savior. Ask your blessing upon your people and study we pray today in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. You know that this is a hallelujah message, not a Halloween message. 
I don't preach any Halloween messages except against it. And I'm not doing that this year. But nonetheless, we're dealing with, in this particular account, of the Lord Jesus' encounter with the master trickster. Trick or treat, little beggars acting like devils, promising tricks, of which there is none better, no better trickster than Satan himself. This account of Jesus' encounter with Satan in the wilderness is a clear portrayal of the only human being who has ever been fully obedient to God and resisted the assault of the angel class adversary to the human soul. Human beings indeed have an angel class adversary. Only one human being has ever fully obeyed God on planet Earth. That one, Jesus Christ. Adam was unwilling to suffer for righteousness' sake. Our Lord Jesus suffered for the sake of righteousness all the way to death by crucifixion. As a result, he alone has the testimony of perfect righteousness before God and among men. He alone has the ability to make others righteous before God the Father in the saving of the trusting soul. Before moving on from the record of our Lord's temptation in the wilderness, we want to pause to further apply the encounter uh, for our practical benefit. But first, let me remind you of Matthew's reasoning in presenting to us here the record of the Lord's temptation as orchestrated in the will of God the Father for our Lord Jesus according to saving purpose. The purpose of our saving is why you have this encounter recorded in the biblical text. Matthew's unique gospel purpose or perspective is directed towards the Jewish people in order to help them correctly identify the promised Messiah, the Christ. And Matthew is likewise driven by the Holy Spirit to explain why the kingdom that was promised to Israel has yet to come. Matthew is particularly mindful of God's king and kingdom throughout his gospel account. Matthew wants us to see that God's king was tested as to the quality of his personal trust in God and that he proved to be perfect in faith even in the midst of great suffering. Jesus is declared to be both the author and the finisher of our faith, or if you will, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith in the will and the word of God. Having seen together in uh, this record last Sunday the thrust of God's king and the uniqueness of his kingdom, we are now free to move on to note some of the many points of legitimate connection and application that are more often, or I should say usually drawn, from this occasion of temptation. We begin this morning with the fact that the temptation uniquely informs 
our grasp and understanding of the wiles of the devil, the wiles of Satan. The word wiles simply means tricks. And the devil is the ultimate trickster. The Apostle Paul instructed the Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God that they might be able to withstand the wiles, the tricks of the devil, Ephesians 6.11. Careful study of the temptation of Christ reveals to us much about the devil's ways and means. It reveals much to us about the, the patterns of approach regarding the aspect of our adversary. The great trickster is by no means after candy trees. The great trickster is interested in one thing and one thing only, and that is the replacement of God. The trickster is only interested in one thing and one thing only, the replacement of God. And that's why you and I, uh, as thinking individuals in this society, can see behind the scenes of what is happening all around us, uh, the aspect of that which is the work of our adversary. Now, there are four truths that are easily represented in this account uh, of temptation of our Lord, four truths that are easy to deduce concerning the ways and the means of our adversary. And uh, one of the ways that you can be benefited in uh, thinking about this temptation event is under the banner of the devil's wiles or the devil's ways or the devil's tricks uh, to think about the unique way in which this passage of Scripture informs us about how the devil works. The first thing we note of four things is that the devil attacked at the point of weakness. We said this last week. We repeat it again this morning. Satan came to Jesus when our Lord was literally starving, verse 2. Believers are wise to guard up when in a weakened state physically. Believers are wise to gear up and guard up uh, in the spirit and by the word of God uh, when they know themselves to be in a weakened state emotionally or spiritually. Trusting God and resisting the adversary is much more difficult when the child of God is in a weakened condition regardless of the cause. When you and I pray for one another, we have often talked about the fact of the foolishness of making our prayer focus about Aunt Sadie's broken arm or stubbed toe. There's so much more to prayer than just the recognition of some physical dilemma. And I don't know about you, but there's hardly a week goes by these days in the Teal home where that there isn't, between the two of us, something physically of which to complain. I don't know about you, but there seems like there's a constant barrage of physicality and challenges that come in the ebb and flow of life. Now, uh, uh, if you and I just uh, make our prayers against, oh, God, I stubbed my toe. Oh, Lord, I broke my hand. Oh, Lord, I did this, I did it. Would you help me? Would you help me? Why, sometimes you get the idea, like, God wants us to go through life with never a cracked bone, Lydia. But that obviously is not the will of God. She's wearing a brace. Uh, the reality is, the fact is that uh, uh, those physical things should prompt our prayers, 
but not necessarily for that physical thing. But the recognition that when people are experiencing difficulty physically, it does impact their grasp and life in the spirit. That a stubbed toe or a broken arm can indeed become a weakened state in which the adversary will enter in. And a believer could easily think, well, if the Lord really loved me, I would have never fallen down the hill like Jack and Jill. You need to be careful because the Bible tells us and the Bible gives to us the pattern of Satan's approach. One of his tricks is that he's not looking for the strong. The old illustration that I was accustomed to using back in the day when I was traveling the nation as a guest speaker is I would talk about the fact that Satan does not hunt dead ducks. And I would tell the story of going to the marsh as a boy with my dad and, and seeing two ducks laying dead on the side of the, of the, uh, of the marsh uh, as we got there to go duck hunting that, that morning. And uh, if I would have said to my dad, hey, dad, watch me, bang, bang, my dad would have gotten on my case for wasting shells because there is no sense in shooting dead ducks. They're dead already. But you try to shoot the live ones. But that which is true of duck hunting is not necessarily true of our spiritual adversary. He looks for the dull. He looks for the deadheaded. He looks for those that are already weakened in order to take them out. He's the ultimate predator. And we could easily in this text see for ourselves the way that he comes in a time of weakness. Secondly, we note the fact that Satan not only attacked at a point of weakness, but as to his ways, he quotes scripture. He comes quoting scripture. On more than one occasion in this particular account, he is, of course, quoting scripture. And the devil's quote in use of Psalm 91 at verse 6 is certainly worth looking at carefully. Verse 6, and saith unto him, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written. Here comes the devil quoting the Bible. What does he say? He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Uh, is, that, uh, uh, is that a quote of, uh, of a scripture? Yes. Is it a quote of a scripture we can identify? Yes. Is it absolutely precise as to its memory? No. In other words, if Satan were in Awana, he would not get his book signed. He would not get his book signed for quoting that verse. Why? Well, because he doesn't quote it correctly. Of course, I'm like the kid in Awana who is simply just trying to get the book signed and makes a mistake. Satan doesn't make any mistake. He leaves out a very little thing, and I want you to see it. Uh, let's flip quickly to Psalm 91, and uh, two verses, 11 and 12, are summarized by Satan in temptation to Jesus. And as I read the two verses from the script of the Old Testament, see if you can identify quickly as we read the little words left out. 91.11, for he shall give his angels charge over thee, 
to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in thy hands, in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. What's left off? That little phrase, in all thy ways. What's the significance of that little phrase? In all thy ways. Well, the ways of the Son of God, the ways of the Messiah, the ways of God the Son become man were ways that were appointed by the eternal Godhead in eternity past. God's protection of Messiah is connected to the appointment of his ways. God did not make some kind of a blanket statement that anything you choose to do, I'll protect you. You jump out of a plane at 30,000 feet and you'll land on your feet and you'll be fine. No, you'll be dead. There isn't anything in the Bible that tells us we should become foolish risk takers. What the Bible does tell us is that when we are seeking to carefully follow God's plan for our life, and that when we are in the will of God, that we will be protected according to that will of God. And sometimes that will of God has meant for missionaries to be killed and to lose their life to the honor and the glory of God. One of my mentors, now long with the Lord, used to say to me, uh, often. Timothy, I've often said to the Lord that if he can ever accomplish more by my death than my continuing to live, I would rather die. I thank God for that kind of perspective coming from one of my spiritual mentors. The pattern of twisting God's word, of leaving something out or adding something to it, is easily demonstrated from Genesis chapter 3. When Eve was under the serpent's assault. And of course, this idea of adding something in or taking something out uh, uniquely uh, uh, connects uh, to the aspect of that, of that third element of pattern or ways or wiles of the devil, which involves, number three, questioning God's truthfulness and goodness. We're at number three now. Number one was attacked at a point of weakness. Number two was quoted scripture de deceptively. Number three is questioning God's truthfulness and goodness. The fourth thing the adversary slavishly pursues is his own glory. He desired sinfully to be as God shortly after creation and seeks to redirect worship of God to himself. And by the way, that's number four. To, to, to direct the worship of God to himself. So here's the four things that are consistent relative to the ways of the devil. Attacks at a point of weakness, uses scripture deceptively, questions God's truthfulness and goodness, and seeks to redirect the worship of God to himself. You can dramatically see that in verse 9. What Satan did do, he does do. And the scripture tells us that we are not to be ignorant of his ways and wiles. Paul, when writing to the Corinthians in his second letter said, in underscoring the truth of Christian forgiveness, quote, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The word devices meaning his ungodly 
drive, and purpose. Satan is patterned in his approach. Just like a good hunter reads the patterns of, uh, of the animal to be hunted. Last week we related to the fact that likewise the predator animals can be patterned as to the way in which they go about things. And when it comes to the wiles of the devil, you have a master class of representation here in the flow of this text. The three ways of assault, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, parallel the assault of Eve in the garden, and it also parallels the exhortation that we read this morning from 1 John 2 concerning the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Our precious Lord uh, uh, passed the test of temptation, uh, knowing the word of God and trusting fully in the God of that word. Jesus knew what God had said, and Jesus knew the God of that word as it relates to the Father and the Spirit. The way of Christ is set before us to follow in the days of our earthly sojourn. The passage is much more than that. One of the things that's sad about uh, the treatment of the temptation encounter is that you do come away with uh, uh, volumes of commentary concerning some of these thread lines to be traced, but oftentimes completely ignoring the main thing that is Matthew's interest in presenting to us this temptation encounter in which you and I can see the quality of Christ the King and thereby understand the marvelous sense in which we are under his authority. So the passage is helpful, and there is something to be noted concerning its value in following the wiles of the devil. Number two, this temptation uniquely informs our understanding and grasp of the wreckage of Adam in the fall. The wreckage of Adam in the fall. Jesus, as you know, is oftentimes referred to as the second Adam because of what Adam did not do. What Adam did do, you all know. But the more important thing is what Adam did not do. What did he not do? He did not obey God. Therefore, Romans chapter 5 reminds us of the loss to all humanity when Adam, the created son of God, made in the image of God, did not obey God. What is that? Well, sin. Adam failed in his ideal conditions of the garden. Jesus, called the Christ, pleased God, the Father, in the rugged conditions of the Judean wilderness. This is why Paul declared, for in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15. Adam gave in to the moment of testing, and proved contrary to the fidelity of God, Jesus proved to be Semper Fi. Jesus proved to be always faithful. And so you not only get to see in this temptation account something of the ways and the wiles of the devil, but you get to see in this account the glorious faithfulness 
of Jesus Christ our Lord and why he is indeed the author and finisher of our faith, the pioneer and perfector of our faith. That brings us to number three this morning. This temptation uniquely informs our understanding of the whole activity of the triune Godhead in the provision of our redemption. Key word is the whole activity of the Trinity. I suppose that I was well in Bible college for a number of, uh, of months, if not years, before I really saw for myself how that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, one God, are all intricately involved in every major activity recorded in the B-I-B-L-E. Talk about creation, you got to talk about God the Father. you got to talk about the Holy Spirit. you got to talk about the creative Christ. You're going to talk about uh, the uniqueness of the death of Christ. You have to talk about the will of the Father. You have to talk about the facilitation of the Spirit. And you have to talk about the, the provision of Jesus Christ. Talk about the resurrection. You have to talk about uh, the power of the Father and uh, uh, the supply of that power by the Spirit and the reality of Jesus Christ. Talk about the ascension. Talk about the return. Talk about anything that the Bible talks about. And you will be again and again and again introduced to the idea of the triune God. I read something again this week that really underscores the uniqueness of the days in which we live. You and I, especially those of us that are uh, up in years uh, a little bit, uh, uh, you and I know there have been significant changes in our nation in recent years. We all know it. We all know it. And sometimes you just read a statistic that really makes that very, very true. Uh, uh, some years ago, and not that long ago, uh, about uh, 2016, remember that? It wasn't that long ago, six years ago. 2016, uh, uh, people that are evangelical, evangelical means that they basically have the idea of the gospel of Christ, that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your Savior. Uh, 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 in 2016, uh, they ask a, a, a sampling of evangelicals uh, whether they believe there were many paths to heaven or one path to, one path to heaven. And uh, over, well over, uh, half of all those evangelicals said, oh, there's only one way to heaven, Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, they took the poll in 2022, and the results have now been registered. And for the first time in American history, when evangelicals are polled, the majority of evangelicals over 50, I mean, it's not a 75% majority, thank God, or a 90% majority, thank God, but it's in the, it's in the mid fifties, uh, uh, like 56% of people that we would say are generally in our stripe, in our brand of gospel preaching emphasis, believe that there is more than one way to God. So, are there changes? Yeah. Is it just about the price of bread? <laughs> no. 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 There are phenomenal changes. And you and I uniquely need to understand the blessedness and the uniqueness of our position concerning one God, three persons, the Savior. Jesus Christ. It is clear when reading our way out of chapter 3 and into this fourth chapter that Jesus is the unique pleasure of God the Father. 
And it is likewise evident that God the Spirit guides and enables the Christ in the will of God the Father. And the result of this encounter demonstrates the sinlessness and the holiness of the God-man. Someone has summarized the text here in saying that you have the representation of the Father's plan, the Spirit's push, and the Son's purity. I like that outline. I think it does capture something of the essence of the account as it is quite often and usually and correctly to be perceived as it sets in the gospel accounts. But even then I'm inclined to say, don't forget, please don't forget, please don't forget the point being made concerning Matthew's particular account. And then the fourth thing this morning, this temptation uniquely informs our understanding and grasp of the word's role, the word of God's role, the scripture's role in resisting temptation. Look again at verses 3 and 4. And when the tempter came to Jesus, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones be made bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Satan, by the way, did not question the Lord's identity in verse 3 by using the word if, if you are the Son of God. No, uh, that word should be taken uh, uh, as, uh, as declarative, not conditional, and is understood probably in better in modern vernacular by the word since, since you are the Son of God. Satan said to Jesus, use your ability to provide yourself uh, uh, the satisfaction of your own legitimate hunger. Satan tempted Jesus to abandon the plan of humble dependence upon the Godhead. And then Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, and it's interesting because it's in the context of Deuteronomy 8 that you understand the nuance that is going on there between the Lord and Satan. Can we say that the Lord would always want a Christian uh, to uh, uh, take the, the spiritual high road and say, I'm not going to eat, 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 I'm not going to eat. No matter what you say, I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to eat. No matter what you say, I'm not going to eat. That's the spiritual thing. Would that be the point of the text? No. If you take that as your text, you'll be dead within three weeks. That's not the point of the text. What is it that made a legitimate need in the life of the Lord, eating, he literally starving. What is it that made that need inappropriate to be fulfilled as Satan described it could be? First of all, that Satan described the way it could be uh, for real? Yes. Does the Son of God have the power to turn stone into hot, baked, buttered bread? I'll tell you, you can be glad I don't have that power. Because I'm sure that half the world, like Midas' golden touch, I'm sure that half the world would now be bread uh, if uh, I had that kind of power. But nonetheless, uh, 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 does the Lord have the ability to do that? Well, he surely does. Uh, so what would be wrong with a legitimate need? What would be wrong with satisfying that legitimate need? in a moment of time. Well, I would suggest that from the New Testament text, you really don't have the essence of it 
uh, in representation clearly until you compare that again with the Old Testament text. So let's do that quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I'll be reading verses 1 to 3. margin of my Bible is included these words, God's mercies in the wilderness. Where was Jesus? In the wilderness. Who's in the wilderness in Deuteronomy 8? Israel. Israel brought out of bondage of Egypt, delivered through the Red Sea, is in the wilderness. Well, why in the world are they in the wilderness? Answer, God led the nation of Israel into the wilderness. Verse 1, all the commandments which I command thee this day shall be observed to do, that ye may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. What was the point of Israel being led into the wilderness in Deuteronomy 8? Well, he comes right there at the end of verse 2. Uh, to know what was in thine heart, to humble thee, to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart. What was the purpose of Jesus Christ being led of uh, the Spirit of God into the wilderness? He is the true Israel. He is the fulfillment of every national promise. And he was led in the uh, wilderness uh, for a time of humility, a time of testing, to know what was in his heart, whether he would keep God's commandment or no. Verse 3, And he, God, humbled thee, Israel, and suffered thee to hunger. It was the will of God that Israel hunger in the wilderness for a time in order that they might turn their hearts towards home. He humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord, doth man live. Listen, you can eat all the things on earth to eat and still die. You can take all the medicine on earth there is to take and still die. You can do anything you know to do as a human being, and the only reason you are here and alive is because God has put you here and is keeping you here, right here and now. So you can say, oh, I don't know why I'm alive. So, is it your responsibility to know every moment of every day why you are still here? No, that's God's business. Your business is to turn to the Lord. Your business is to get your heart pointed towards home. Your business is to follow the pattern that you see in the person of the Lord Jesus. Satan tempted Jesus to abandon his humble dependence on the Godhead. 
Jesus knew that Satan's temptation for a quick satisfaction of his own need in regards to hunger was to abandon the very purpose of God for being led into that moment of temptation in the wilderness. Israel was led by God into the wilderness. God made the nation to experience times of hunger and need so that they would learn the great truth that God and God alone is the source of all life. God and God alone is the source of all sustenance. And he alone is the giver and the sustainer of life. Human beings do not ultimately live on food or drink or even air or certainly not medicine. Human beings live on the whole of God's word and will. The Lord Jesus, the perfect Israel, or Prince of God, quoted the pertinent passage of Scripture, most germane to the temptation at hand, and thus reminded the tempter that he lived on earth dependent upon every word of God spoken concerning him. This is a beautiful affirmation of what Jesus previously said to John in chapter 3, when he appealed to John saying, we must fulfill all righteousness. This resisting by means of scripture application may well seem to be out of reach for you and for me as modern day Christians, but I would remind you that that is exactly what James has in mind when he tells God's flock that, quote, if anyone lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all believers liberally. Now you're working on some facet of your car and you know yourself not to be a mechanic. And it's certainly not wrong to say to the Lord, Lord help me. I don't know what I'm doing here, but I'm turning wrenches and I'm trying to put this thing back together. I took it apart. And I think it goes this way, but now that I think it goes this way, it looks to me like it goes the other way. And so, Lord, help me. It's not wrong to pray prayers like that. I've prayed them many times. But it is wrong to say, Lord, you promised me wisdom. I'm working on this car. It's a Chevrolet. Of course, it's got electronic problems. And so I'm working on this car. And uh, as I'm working on this car, I need help today. And whenever a believer needs help of any kind, your Bible, the Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives wisdom. Oh, God, give me the wisdom of an engineer. I know we got engineers in our church like Ed and Kurt and others, but I don't want to be like them. I just want to be, in this moment, an engineer, know exactly how this all fits together. So, Lord, give me the wisdom as you promised it. That thing still won't work. <laughs> that is not at all what God promised us. In context, the verse, if any man lack wisdom, it comes under the umbrella of the truth that you and I are often tested by God. Tempted of the devil. We are assured that God tempts none of us. But he does test us. And we are told in James chapter 1 that if any of us lack wisdom 
to proceed in a moment of testing. That if we just pause to look to God, if we just pause to remind ourselves of what God's Word says, that we will uniquely, uniquely be given of God and liberally the things that we need of the Word of God in order to withstand the moment of testing. Christ chose obedience to the eternal will of God and the way of the Father, even though it produced in him in that moment tremendous human suffering. James builds upon the testimony of Christ in the moment of temptation and says to us by way of instruction, chapter 4 and verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so the account ends with the devil leaving, and angels of the elect and good kind coming to minister to our Lord in that moment of time. What a phenomenal, instructive moment you have for us here in the record of the scriptures. Is Christ a wonderful, wonderful example? He is. Are there many things to be learned here? There are. Don't forget the main thing. Don't forget the main thing. It relates directly to what we study next in Hebrews, and that is that Jesus Christ met the test and passed, as we would say, with flying colors. And as a result of that, you and I can speak of a qualified Savior who is able to deal with the wretchedness of our soul and even the wretchedness of our adversary, who has by no means gone asleep in this generation. May God help us to understand and to apply. Father, thank you this morning for the listening ear. Help us to be responsive to the things of Christ and to continue to honor the name of Christ above all other names. It is in this blessed name we live, and in this blessed name we pray and ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.